there is this thing called the country of origin effect where you evaluate products differently depending on where they're from. If you don't recognize the brand, the next thing you go to is kind of a cue to infer uh, you know, ideas about product quality is the country that that product was made in. Reverse innovation may sound like some attempt to return us to the dark ages, but it has a really specific meaning, especially when it comes to medtech. It's about where we look for innovation and about overturning our preconceived notions of where new ideas come from. Mark Skopek and Matthew Harris, both from Imperial College London, are two of the authors of a new analysis setting out to highlight those preconceptions and creating new routes to bring innovation into the NHS. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and Mark and Matthew join me on the line now to discuss. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. Um, so your article is about reverse innovation. And overall, it's talking about this sort of change in the flow of innovation from high-income countries to low-income countries, swapping that round. So innovation comes from lower-income countries to higher-income countries. Um, you see why the name reverse comes in there, but it still seems a little bit, I don't know, problematic, perhaps. Why is it that that term, do you think, is stuck around? Well, it's a it's an actually really good question, and um, I agree uh, entirely. It's a, a problematic term. It's not one that we coined. It, it uh, originated from uh, Vijay Govindaraj and and Chris Trimble's book uh, by the name Reverse Innovation, which specifically was looking at the flow of innovations from low to high income countries in the context of a strategic management stra- uh, perspective. But I agree entirely that the term is problematic. Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, It suggests, of course, that innovation ordinarily only flows one way, which is from a high to low income country, and that therefore the opposite must be the reverse of that, which in itself is a problematic issue. The second reason is that it suggests that it's quite a linear process, which it isn't, of course. Um, Anybody that's had any experience with adoption of innovations realizes that it's a highly complex uh, issue um, and it's not at all linear. Um, we find it to be a bit of a paradox, in fact, because the term itself perhaps perpetuates the very thing it's trying to um, turn around. But we continue to use the term reverse innovation because we understand those inequities in knowledge diffusion to still be very, very um, prevalent. Um, I think until we uh, come to use a terminology that's slightly more representative of the of an equal um, playing field in terms of knowledge diffusion. We'll be using reverse innovation for the foreseeable future. Um, other terms might be, for example, co-development, um, shared learning, mutual benefit. Uh, these are terms that we often use in this space as well. Uh, but for now, reverse innovation, I think, is one that's probably the most common. Well, thanks for that. It's it's really useful to get out of the way that this is just innovation as anyone would think about it. It's not about de-innovating as in taking away new things. Um, 
In the article, you've got lots of examples of this, from things that industry have done to things that individual doctors and surgeons have done. Siobe's method, which is a condom catheter tamponade for stopping bleeding um, after childbirth, uh, was one that I find particularly interesting. Just the story behind it was very moving. Could you take us through some of the, uh, the examples there? Sure. Yeah. Well, so you, you touched on Seba's method and, you know, we have plenty of other examples in this table as well. And I think what we tried to do in this table was really, um, you know, give lots of different examples because there is some literature suggesting that some reverse innovations are, you know, maybe stronger or, um, I guess, quote unquote, more true reverse innovations because they come from, they've been ideated and created in low income countries and are now spilling over. And so we have some of those in there, but we also have some that have kind of been ideated in high income countries and then first trialed and used in low income countries before now being brought back um, to high income countries. But just to look at, yeah, SABA's method a little bit more and specifically. So, yeah, it's a really great innovation and it, would, it is what would be called, I suppose, a, a frugal innovation because it's something that is, has been used to kind of do more with much less um, for a lot, a uh, big amount of people, a great amount of people. And so as you you mentioned the story behind it, so it, it comes it came back to a um, an OBGYN working in rural Bangladesh who noticed that there was a very high um, maternal mortality rate um, due to intrauterine um, bleedings or postpartum hemorrhage. And uh, a lot of the patients weren't responding um, to medical treatment uh, so with medicine or they didn't even have access to that. So what um, Dr. Siva Akta, who um, this, this treatment is named after, did is she you know, she saw, well, we have condoms, we have regular catheters, and we have a piece of string. And so she used this, uh, these three, these three materials and filled the kind of the balloon um, that was made by the condom with a saline solution and inserted that into the, into the uterus and kind of stopped the bleeding from the inside. And it's really had dramatic effects in terms of reducing, reducing maternal mortality um, in rural Bangladesh. And so, yeah, th this is, you know, a really great example um, of, you know, a frugal innovation that's had a huge effect um, on population in, in Bangladesh. And it seems to me that that kind of characterized the innovation that you're, you're talking about here. It's a, a real patient need um, and a, a lack of resources that, that requires sort of ingenuity to get around. Um, and it did occur that this kind of thing, this kind of innovation just probably wouldn't happen in higher income settings because we would just throw money at the problem uh, uh, until it went away. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think at the moment the innovation um, landscape is geared towards improving quality of care and patient outcomes, which of course is absolutely important, right and proper, but less so is the focus on reducing cost for the system as a whole. Um, and of course, uh, in, in, in settings where resources are scarce, there's an immediate necessity to develop innovations, sometimes workarounds, sometimes frugal innovations that actually do pretty much the same job, but at far reduced cost. And I think really it's a mindset shift that's required in the NHS, needing to now kids consider ourselves as a, a genuinely resource scarce setting um, in much the same way. And that the innovation process needs to move away from, um, you know, the latest uh, sophisticated technology, perhaps, um, that's very expensive to actually thinking, well, what can we really afford to innovate um, in our system without 
um, sacrificing quality, of course, or patient safety, obviously, but uh, finding solutions that actually uh, can benefit the system as a whole. Um, in that regard, I think we, we're not doing enough um, to identify innovations and adopt them. We tend to uh, develop things from scratch, uh, which seems like an extraordinary waste of time and resources at times, when there, there are many, many uh, excellent solutions from around the world that we could be paying atten more attention to, not just, of course, from low-income countries, but we need to be investing more in adopting those innovations that already exist and that have an evidence base for, as opposed to developing things from scratch, which we tend to do much more of in the NHS. Mm, and I suppose that kind of goes back to the, the first point you were making about where the innovation comes from and, and being aware that you know, innovation isn't just something that happens in, in high-income countries. It's happening wherever people are, are working. Um, and it's really a, a mindset uh, that we need to get, a, get away from. And can, can I just go back to the thing you said about where the innovation comes from? Because that's something that is very important in this, this idea of reverse innovation as well, is because um, as it's been studied kind of pretty effectively in consumer economics, there is this thing called the country of origin effect where you evaluate products differently depending on where they're from. If you don't recognize the brand, the next thing you go to is kind of a cue to infer uh, you know, ideas about product quality is the country that that product was made in. And so something that we've been looking at as well is how do these biases perhaps affect not only research from low-income countries, but also um, innovations such as, you know, a lot of these reverse innovations coming from, you know, Bangladesh or Burkina Faso or Ghana or Malawi. That's a, a point well made, but it's not only um, attention, uh, I suppose, that might limit innovations coming from lower to higher income countries. We do have a different regulatory burden, perhaps, um, different healthcare systems, scale at which things need to happen. So uh, you identify some of those those barriers in your paper. Could you take us through some of them and, and perhaps how we can get around that? Yeah, it's a really, really challenging uh, question because, of course, the regulatory uh, environment is there for a very, very good reason. Um, not, not just questions of patient safety, of course, but uh, you know, ensuring that there's due process in terms of testing and trialing new products and technologies and drugs, of course. Um, that said, um, at times, the regulatory system has served to be an extraordinary barrier to adoption of innovations. Uh, and as you rightly say, it can take many, many years, in fact, on average, 17 years for an innovation to be developed and then scaled, in part because of the regulatory environment in this country. And you rightly point out that in low-income countries, what we call, uh, they have institutional voids, we say, in that which allows entrepreneurs and innovators the space, if you like, to try and experiment without being encumbered by too many regulatory hurdles or barriers. Um, there's there's a sweet spot, I'm sure, where we need to that we need to try and find in the in, in both in the low-income country context, but also here in the NHS. Um, some of the work that we're trying to do now um, through the recently funded NIHR ARCs, so these are the Applied Research Collaboratives, of which there are uh, over a dozen throughout the country, is to really uh, foster this reverse innovation agenda locally uh, where we work at Imperial College to try and identify 
local providers that have a real appetite to pilot innovations from low-income countries for the pure purpose of reverse innovation and the benefits it can bring. Um, I think one of the big challenges, though, beyond regulation is actually having people become more aware of the innovations and the opportunities that are available. Um, a large part of this process requires simply modeling what the likely benefits and challenges and costs of these innovations might be in the NHS so that there's a business case, if you like, for their adoption. And one, one of the main issues, just to finish off on that point, is around CE marking for these sorts of innovations. Um, the innovations we uh, present in this article, frugal innovations, tend to be repurposed technologies and it's very difficult to obtain CE marks for these sorts of innovations and very difficult to patent them as well uh, as medical devices. Uh, it requires um, quite a lot of upfront investment. So there are opportunities for angel investors and venture capitalists and foundations and grant making organizations to actually really help support this process for low income country entrepreneurs. But at the same time, really invest in the brokering uh, process whereby organizations here in the UK, as an example, can be supported to A, identify the innovations that might be of interest in the NHS and B, support the process of adoption into the UK, as an example. It very much requires management. Reverse innovation is not something that happens left to the market, we find. Mm. I was going to say on that, I mean, within that, you presumably want to build in some mechanisms to ensure that, you know, the people in lower income settings do see a benefit themselves from, from that innovation being rolled out in, uh, and saving money in high income settings. Um, there should be a sort of reciprocal uh, benefit for them as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, we would view it as uh, expanding markets for them to be able to sell their products. Um, interestingly, the culture aspect we touched on earlier around reverse innovation, does uh, it applies in both directions. And we often find that entrepreneurs haven't considered high income country context to be eligible markets for their products. Um, again, speaking to that sort of, if you like, uh, deep rooted um, perception that low-income country innovations are good for low-income countries and not for high-income countries only, um, which is something that reverse innovation seeks to overturn. So I think uh, absolutely the, there's, a, there's a resource question, a regulatory question, but also a cultural and perception question for low-income country entrepreneurs in order to be able to begin to access high-income country markets. Mm. And equally, um Presumably, we need to build in, you know, protections for patients in, in these countries. Um, we've seen problems in the past with pharmaceutical companies going and, you know, testing drugs in, in India, where there was a, a more lax regulatory environment around um, clinical trials, which, uh, you know, they're now rowing back on because of um, problems it caused there. That's a, a good point. I mean, I was recently giving a, a talk at an event here at Imperial College, and I was speaking about uh, mosquito net mesh, which has been used for hernia repair in sub-Saharan Africa. And so what they do is, instead of using the expensive surgical mesh that costs about $100 or so per piece um, for inguinal hernia repair, um, they will cut out small pieces of mosquito net mesh and sterilize that and use that um, to repair the inguinal hernia. And it's been 
in practice now for several years, and there's really been no difference in in health outcomes uh, in terms of you know relapse and post-operative complications. But after I gave this talk about this uh, this device, I mean, somebody asked me afterwards, well, so if your doctor asks you, would you rather have a surgical mesh or a mosquito net mesh? What would you say? And I think that's a very important point that you know we we need to think about as well. Is it's not just about you know the idea of oh we can save we can save money and here's a, and here's a great innovation, but it's also about well how will the patients uh, you know view this and will they want to be uh, you know will they want to be considering these things? Um, but I think that's also where where it comes into play that we have to be more aware that these innovations are out there. And like I said, the mosquito net mesh has been in use. Um, for several years now, and there's no difference really in outcomes, and there's meta-analyses and um, a strong evidence base to support that. And so that's when kind of the science communication part comes in, where we have to say, you know, there is evidence to support this, the use of this device, and uh, we should be considering it more strongly. You say there have been examples of, of innovations um, flowing in this direction of reverse innovation happening. Um, we've spoken a little bit about some of the, the innovations that are happening in low-income settings. Um, have you got any examples of them transferring to high-income settings? Yeah, there are several. I mean, I don't think there's um, enough, of course, <laughs> but, uh, but there have been some uh, interesting uh, successes in this regard. Uh, we talk a little bit about the kangaroo care method um, in neonatal care. So uh, babies that are born by the prematurely or low for birth weight ordinarily would spend some time in uh, expensive incubators. Um, and back in the 1970s, um, I believe it was in Chile, um, a, I think, Swedish obstetrician or pediatrician rather, um, realized whilst working there that actually if the babies were held very very close to the mother or any parent or or carer 24 hours a day swaddled um, then outcomes in fact for that infant were entirely comparable to those that were kept in incubators um, and since then randomized controlled trials have demonstrated to be um, superior in fact in many respects to incubator care and that's um, model of care, if you like, that technique has been uh, scaled not only through South America, but also sub-Saharan Africa, and increasingly in through Europe, uh, the US and UK. Um, other examples are the Ponsetti club foot technique, which some um, of your listeners may have heard of. It's an orthopedic surgical technique that replaces actual surgery um, for children that have club feet with um, a uh, plaster cast manipulation um, of the ankles over a period of several weeks, um, obviating the need for uh, surgical intervention. And that originated in Malawi and has since spread also through sub-Saharan Africa and now increasingly used as a de facto standard of care for club foot here in the UK and in the US. And the most famous example of a reverse in, of successful reverse innovation is one that actually formed the case study in Govindarajan and Trimble's book on reverse innovation, which was through General Electric, the multinational corporation. Um, they innovated through an Indian subsidiary of theirs to develop a frugal version of an ECG machine, which they call the Mac 400. Um, and they essentially made uh, converted what is what uh, a 10, 15,000 pound ECG machine into 
I think, a $100 ECG machine that's portable, rugged, can fit into a satchel and produce ECGs of exactly the same quality as the normal machine. Um, that scale throughout India and has been um, uh, sold in the United States now extensively as a replacement for the normal ECG machines. So uh, that's a slightly different example because it was all, uh, if you like, promoted and propagated through General Electric as an entity, as an organization, um, but is still one of the most famous examples of a reverse innovation that we have. The kind of innovations that you know you've said have have travelled um, successfully there. It isn't using materials or or anything that would be available in a uh, lower income setting. It's it's a conceptual advance or it's an innovation that a, a Western company has has had in in those places. So it seems like you know that even with those, there is still a, a way to go with reframing innovation as as coming from the global south and and you're right a lot of these innovations are um simplifications uh, on current best practice um and and in in that regard um you know it's it's very much about a, a cultural mindset shift around what we typically consider innovations to be sort of glitzy high-tech very sophisticated oftentimes um technologies to exploring things that are actually um, doing very, very similar things in terms of outcomes, but perhaps not in such a glitzy way. Um, they can be, if, if you like, si considered simplifications um, in terms of in the innovation. Uh, and this is what's really the exciting opportunity with reverse innovation, we think. Great. That's, um, that was a good answer to a really rambling question. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Mark Skopek and Matthew Harris talk about the article Delivering Cost-Effective Healthcare Through Reverse Innovation. That's it for this week, but we'll be back tomorrow with some electioneering. It's that time again, and until polling day on the 12th of December, we're going to be delving behind the campaign promises to explain why, for example, Pledges on GP numbers are much more complex than politicians would have you believe. So every Friday from now till the election, Tom Mobley is going to bring experts into the studio to dissect that week's election news. So subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that and you'll know how to vote. That's it for this week. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.